This episode of Inside Acting is brought to you in part by VO2GoGo.com, the award-winning voiceover training system and winner of Backstage's Reader's Choice Award for Best VO Training four years in a row. Visit VO2GoGo.com slash start for a free getting started in voiceover online class that will help you add voiceover to your acting portfolio. That's VO2GoGo.com slash start. Episode 161 of Inside Acting. I'm AJ Meyer. And I'm Trevor Algott. And on this podcast, we interview writers, directors, agents, casting directors, filmmakers, a lot of filmmakers lately. And we package it up into this podcast and put it out on uh, iTunes and the internet for you folks at home. Yeah, and we're two dudes that started this thing because we were looking for the answers. You know, we've had a little bit of experience in the entertainment industry. We've worked on some films and TV shows and done a lot of plays between us. Uh, but we don't know everything. We just kind of consider ourselves, you know, eternal students, as it were. So uh, all this is is us just looking for the answers, hearing stories, hearing about what works and what doesn't work for various peoples. So if you hear something on the show that you think uh, is life-changing or you hear something on the show that you think is kind of uh, erroneous, so to speak, uh, feel free to get in touch with us. Uh, lots of different ways to do that. Start at our website, InsideActingPodcast.com. And what's not erroneous is Trevor's interview with Eric England, <laughs> part not. two of which, that was a terrible segue. It just added a negative to what you already said. Uh, <laughs> part two of Trevor's interview with indie filmmaker Eric England coming up later in the episode. Stick around for that. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 161. The the sick episode. I know, both of us, we were... <laughs> or, the, or, the, or the early morning throat issue I episode. Know. We were just saying, just before we started recording, you were like, I need to make some tea, my throat's all screwed up, and I was like, my throat's all screwed up. And, yeah. Uh, and now we just sound like two old men. <laughs> just complaining. Yeah. That's what we... That's... Yeah. that's 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 actually why we started the podcast because we knew at a certain point we would get to an age where people would stop listening to us, but we still wanted to be able to complain. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean that was my motivation. Yeah. So, so it's now good. we can. It's good to finally be here. You know, I'm so excited to be able to complain. I can't even I can't even begin yeah. well, to tell you. What, what's the internet for, honestly? If it's not to complain or to or to throw insults at people without any sort of with anonymity, yes, you know, being so God. jaded right now, so jaded. Uh, it's true though. I man, I was reading um, I was reading some article on like a a, a feminist blog, which I, I like. I enjoy reading from time to time, and <clears throat> this uh, this woman had written this article about celebrating her, I don't know, her, like, 15th wedding anniversary, and she decided to write, like, you know, a list of tips of how to make a happy marriage work, and she posted some pictures from her wedding day where she, um, 
she was she weighed a, a lot more than she did n- nowadays. She sort of you know realized that it was a reflection of her self worth when it came to her body image, and she took a lot of steps and ended up losing a lot of weight and was in in a lot better shape today. Um, and had never really had the courage to post, you know, pictures like that. And instead of, you know, in the comments, instead of people saying like, oh, thank you for the tips and I'm so glad you're in love and all this stuff, literally almost every single comment, including women, but mostly men, was about how fat she looked in her wedding photos. Oh, my God. And, she, and the article, nothing in the article mentioned anything about it. She just happened to, like, post a picture from her wedding day um, as a way of, like, you know, providing context for the article itself. Man, what is just like, is oh, I hate the Internet yeah. sometimes. You know, it's the Internet is a beautiful, miraculous thing. But I, I just don't understand why some people, like, there's just something not working in their lives if they feel they need to. If that's how they, if that's how they get, if that's how they vent, they could just go off on the internet and hate on strangers. Like that, just you know, I I I wish the kind of awareness <laughs> for them uh, that would uh, that would hopefully change that behavior. That's I don't know. I'm not here really to really great way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but uh, who knows what they're dealing with. Um, what's what's going on in your real life, Trevor? Not your internet life. Is there? What's the difference? Uh, nothing, man. I mean, I just uh, I just finished my two hundred and thirty second workout of two thousand fourteen. Damn, I'm going for three hundred. Damn, workouts. boy. Yeah, yeah. Damn. That's, that's the goal. Woo. And um, you Get know, plugging plug away on on various other stuffs. I, I got a couple. A couple of goals that I've really kind of solidified over the past few months, and I've just been chipping away at them. And it's so cool to just wake up every day and be like, "Just take another step, you know, one more step closer towards those things." Yeah. So that's that's really my life, man. I mean, the acting thing is is great. It's um, I'm not I'm in no rush. I'm in no rush, and you know, some days I I feel really motivated to do it, and other days I'm kind of like, "It's okay that things aren't happening right now. I'm I'm I'll get there when I'm ready and when it's time." and um, I'm mean, just a total peace with it. Yeah, you're so, not uh, beating yourself up for not uh, taking massive leaps forward on those particular days. Is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, exactly, <clears throat> exactly. And it's it's not even That's it's not so even cool. about not beating myself up. It's just not being attached to um, a sort of mm, consistent mindset of being unhappy with where I am. Like I'm just over that. I'm just totally past it. So um, I'm I'm living a really blessed life. You know, based on everything that we've learned and everything that we've heard from guests and everything, that all that means is that something huge is coming. Yeah. <laughs> because you're like, man, it's cool. Like I'm living a blessed life. Everything's great, and I'm I'm in no hurry, and I don't need this, you know, to validate me and all this stuff. And that's exactly when, you know, the work will come. Cool. Well, if it does, great. If it doesn't, no big deal, man. I got a lot of things I want to do with my life, and acting is just one of them. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. What's uh, what's go new? Ryan McCartan? <laughs> what's um, new in your world? So I uh, I said on the last episode when we recorded, and it was the day before, actually, the day before I had a meeting with an agent. Um, that meeting went amazing. I was in their office for over an hour, um, which I never expected. 
I sat down with um, the three sort of head agents at this um, at this agency, and I really l- jive with them. We got along really well. I liked them. They liked me. And basically, they they were ready to sign me on the spot, but wanted to, of course, you know, talk to my manager and and have the three of us sort of, I don't know, have our our, our brain trust and. The next day, not only did I have an agent, but they got to work for me immediately. And I have um, an appointment to audition for Aladdin on Broadway no on, way. Mo- on Monday. No way. Like the next day. Bad. The ass, next day, man. I got a call from from uh, from my manager saying, "So you have an audition for, for Aladdin on Monday." So the take no prisoners mindset is clearly <clears throat> yielding results. <laughs> yes. Yeah, definitely. Great, well, and, it, and, and I've never felt more like myself in a meeting, you know, and, and I, I'm so grateful for the podcast and for uh, your experiences and my experiences and our listeners' experiences and our guests' experiences and everything that we've learned and built up over, over time because – I had no, I wasn't nervous about it at all. I was not nervous about the meeting whatsoever. And I didn't even really think about the fact that I was, it wasn't like I have to, I didn't have to think to myself, I've, I've got to go in there and be myself. Mm. <laughs> I've got to mm-hmm. go in there and, and, and that almost like putting pressure on myself to be myself. Yeah. I, I wasn't even thinking about it at all, but I was so relaxed and, Groovy, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, groovy. that uh, relaxed and groovy. That <clears throat> I couldn't help but be myself, That's and awesome. just knowing that no matter what happened, the results were going to be what what they were going to be. If I if I if they didn't like me and we didn't get along and 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 whatever, it didn't matter. I I didn't have an agent walking into that office. So if I didn't have one walking out, it's not yep. it's not the biggest deal in the world. Yeah, you know. Yep. So it, it, I was just super comfortable, and I think it really really paid off because they got to see who I was, and and they really they really liked me. So that's cool, man. Um, Qu- question, I'm excited. Question for you: How much of this uh, of this journey? Uh, or of you going into this office and just kind of feeling completely at peace and not needing to put on a persona or something like that. How much of that do you think is what we've talked about and, uh, and, and just kind of the, the practice and the reps you've been putting in and how much of it do you think is just uh, a byproduct of getting older? I don't, hmm, I don't know. That's a good question. I, mean, I obviously it's both, <clears throat> but I, I just wonder um, kind of what you think about how, maybe percentage wise. I'd be curious. Well, I think if you look at like human beings in general, people tend to mature at different rates and you can have somebody like a Ryan McCartan who has a similar mindset, but he's 20, 21. Um, And then you have these idiots who are 40 and 50 posting these ridiculous comments, these mean bullyish comments on, you know, on the, on the internet. It's like, People, people mature at different rates, and, and some people not at all. I, I would say if I didn't have... 
I, I almost have to say it's a hundred percent experience and a hundred percent podcast because it wouldn't matter how old I was if I hadn't had these conversations with our guests, for instance. I wouldn't. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Is really the answer hmm. because I don't know if I would have arrived. I don't know if I would have r- arrived at the same maturity conclusions, emotions, feelings, experiences. Were it not for this podcast, our guests, et cetera, et cetera, I think it, I think the lessons would have come a lot more hard fought, and yeah, there would have been a lot more uh, quote unquote learning the hard way. Hmm. <clears throat> Interesting, you know that reminds me of what Ryan Basham said when we had him on the podcast like fifty episodes ago. I remember because Ryan's a life coach. For those of us uh, who who maybe haven't heard that in a while or thought of that episode in a while. Ryan's a life coach as well as a producer. And I remember, you know, he's like, you know, his late twenties. And I remember asking him, you know, if say you're working with a client who's like twice your age and they're looking at you and you're thinking like this young kid, you know, this young whippersnapper, how dare he thinks he knows more than me. I've, I've lived twice as long and blah, blah, blah. And I asked Ryan, I said, what would you say to somebody who, who said that to you? And he said, uh, I remember he said, that's ridiculous because how many old people, old, you know, older slash older, uh, how many older people do you know that behave like children? And I just thought, oh, God, that's so true. That's so, yeah. so true. So when it comes to something like this, I, I do think, you know, for my part, for my journey, uh, a, a big part of it is just the kind of sereneness, not serenity, but sereneness that comes with just getting older where, you know, you, you start to value different things and other things become less important that maybe were really important when you were in your twenties. But also, yeah, I think we've, we've hopefully been on a sort of accelerated track to sort of inner peace within this kind of crazy up and down emotional roller coaster of an industry because of the, the stories we've been able to hear and share and, and the conversations we've had. And yeah. Uh, and, 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 and not just the podcast, but the personal work, the personal work that we've yeah, done, the, that too. the self-development and emotional intelligence stuff, like all of that is about getting out of your own way, <clears throat> being authentic, knowing your worth. And I'm so, so grateful for, for all of those experiences. And it, and it is reflected in, in, in things like I'm, I'm so excited about the audition on Monday. I'm not nervous about me being myself. I'm just nervous about, you know, learning all of the material which is a great place to be. And, and, and if I go in there with the material solid, I'm going to be, n- you know, nothing but confident in that room. And if they choose not to cast me or call me back, it's like, okay, I wasn't a right fit or I didn't get along with someone or something happened, but it has nothing to do with who I am as a person. Mm, yeah. And, and it's just such a great, great mindset. We're actually going to, not on this episode, but on an upcoming episode, we're going to be, discussing a a similar um revelation so to speak by from a a, a, one of our uk listeners we're not going to get to that email on this uh on this episode but she's been having similar experiences and it's just i i would just wish this kind of freedom i guess you could say on 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 any artist and specifically actors and, and any other artists where you, you are, um, where, where our profession or our art includes being with, dealing with, working with 
uh, other human beings. emails we wanted to just kind of chat about uh, briefly before we jump into part two of our interview with Eric. Uh, And the first one comes from a listener named Joe. And uh, Joe's an aspiring actor, a self-described aspiring actor just outside of a major market. Um, He also um, would like to, or he just kind of suggested that we we consider bringing nomadic performers in the podcast. Uh, not just actors and you know aerialists and things like that, but but jugglers and fire breathers and kind of Ren Faire types. Is that <clears> kind <throat> of the main gist of his um, of his message? Yeah, yeah. Basically, these two these two points. Um, the second one, obviously, just being that suggestion. But he basically lives. Um, I think he said about two hours outside of New, New York, York maybe even, yeah. maybe even maybe even closer. Um, he, he's 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 pretty close. I think he's somewhere in Connecticut, maybe and. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. He was just talking about how frustrating it was to be so close to a major market and and yet feel so far away. And I think that's the thing that I thought would be interesting to discuss on the podcast is that he's 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 just outside of a major market, but he's not really in a minor market. He's just somewhere. Mm-hmm, right, <laughs> and right. um, but he wants to be an actor, and he feels like he's got the golden handcuffs of the of the thrival job kind of keeping him there, and feels like he can't. He, he, he's sort of stuck. He can't move yeah. uh, forward with what he wants to do, and he feels like you know uh, sometimes he, he'll want to do a, a show or something, and you know it'll rehearse during his day job hours, and then he, he he'll want to audition, but that's also conflicting with the job. Or you know the only projects he's he's actually available for are you know, smaller things because they do rehearse at night when he's not working, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, I know I've been there. <laughs> I know you've been there, Trev. Yep. I just thought that, you know, we might be able to um, not only discuss it on the podcast and maybe get some of our listeners to chime in, especially on his suggestion of, of guests and asking our listeners if they're interested in that kind of thing. But also, um, you know, not only chime in, but provide some maybe uh, support yeah, on this yeah. on this front, well, if you will. it's interesting because this this uh, email, like the whole idea of bringing on um, sort of um, would you call them like uh, nomadic performers? I think as you put it, AJ, bringing people like that on is it kind of jives with our listener pick of the week this week, which we'll get to after the interview. But the idea of that that you know uh, what we do is not just about emotional work; it's also entertainment, and it can also kind of be you know the sort of fun circusy type stuff. I mean, we we we're all part of that that big family. So I love the I, I love the suggestion, and uh, I'm totally open to talking to people uh, and, and featuring them on the podcast who make their living that way, or make an income, or or feel that that's that specific kind of work is their purpose. I think that's really cool. Uh, and as far as um, the frustration of being just outside a, a major market, and um, 
you know, like Joe says, uh, you know, it's it's frustrating because you you salivate over the city's shows. I'm reading directly from his email now, but can't afford to see them. You make connections who say they'll audition you, but lose interest when they find out you have to commute. You hear about open auditions for a regional theater 20 minutes from your house, but it only rehearses during your day job. So a lot of obstacles there. Uh, but the only thing that I would say is that where there's a will, there's a way. Mm-hmm. You know, it is tough. It is tough. <laughs> like if it were easy, everybody would be a working actor. Every working actor that ever wanted to be a working actor would be a working actor. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it just mean it's just a, these are things are here to, to see how badly you want it. I know that people say that a lot and that's kind of a cliched, you know, thing at this point, but, uh, it's true. It's true. You know, what kind of, um, what kind of, uh, adjustments are you willing to make to, to chase this thing and, and make it happen? Yeah. That's kind of all I have for that. Um, but I, you know, I've been there. I've been there where you're just like, I quit. I quit. I'm done. Like, this is just not <laughs> worth it. You know? And then you come around 20 minutes later and you're like, how was this kidding? But, I was just throwing a fit. Everything's yeah. fine. Um, yeah. I, it's funny that you said, well, there's a will, there's a way because my response was going to be something very similar, just with different words. I was just going to say, how badly do you want it? Yeah. You know, um, it, one one of the things that Trevor and I have learned in these, you know, self-development and emotional intelligence workshops is everything is a choice. Mm-hmm. And whether it, it probably doesn't feel this way, Joe, like it probably, I, I mean, I, I know Trevor and I have both been there. It doesn't feel like this, but everything in your life right now, your job, your situation, where you live, um, what you're acting in and what you're not acting in is all a choice. Everything is a choice. And I would encourage you maybe to go back and listen to, um, uh, oh my gosh, I'm totally blanking on her name. Um, early, early episodes. She's a very successful national commercial actress. Porter Kelly. Yes, Porter Kelly. Oh my God. I just completely blanked on her name. Yeah, episode. Sorry, Porter. She, she still listens to the podcast, so I'm sorry, Porter. Um, (laughs) um, Porter Kelly, uh, had that uh, great story where you know she had an audition and this job wouldn't they would like wouldn't let her go for the audition or something and she said oh okay and she started packing up her boxes mm-hmm. <laughs> at like packing up her desk and they were like wait you're you're leaving and she was like well well yeah because this isn't what i want to do that's what i want to do so yeah. and if you're not willing to work with me then you know it was really nice working here and no hard feelings it, you know, it's, just, it's, it's not personal. This is just my life. So I have to go now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, um, it's, it's easy to get confused about what the real aim is. Um, and, you know, it's easy to forget that we're doing a lot of the things we're doing in support of the larger vision. And it can be easy to confuse those things sometimes and be like, oh, well, you know, I don't I don't want to jeopardize my, my shift this week by going on this audition. It's like, well, did you show up here to be a waiter or did you show up here to? Yeah. You know. Anyway. Yeah, it's it's so reminiscent of our days at, at Apple where, yeah. you know, we'd <clears throat> have to make all kinds of concessions and move things around to, to make a um, to make an audition. And I just remember um, when I went back to work there the second time, I knew that I wasn't going to miss a single audition no matter no matter what happened. And I was just going to come to them with solutions or with, you know, hey, I need I need a favor. And the thing is, it's like I wasn't afraid of. <clears throat> I wasn't afraid of no longer having that job. Mm. Basically. Powerful. Yeah, well, Joe, uh, hopefully that's supportive. And, uh, you know, if there's, if there's anything you want to sort of add in terms of context for what it is that you're 
your life is like, for instance, if there's some, you know, maybe you have medical debt like like Trevor did, and, and there's a specific reason why you're, you know, building up a um, um, an amount of wealth or, or something like that. Um, let us know. Reach out to the podcast again. Call us. Email us, and um, you know, we'd be happy to continue the conversation. Yeah, that'd be. I would love to hear more, just especially because I'm learning that you know our situations are so different, but they are so similar. Just all you know, everybody kind of in this line of work. You know, we we have unique kind of um, circumstances, and yet somehow everything kind of boils down to just a few key components that you know, to make it work. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, our second message comes from Tara, who is also our patron of the week this week. Spoiler alert. Tara Monique is a, uh, is a longtime supporter of the podcast. She's an actress who, who was just kind of had an interest in, um, like jewelry and, uh, you know, costume and wardrobe kind of stuff. And she eventually made the transition from actor to wardrobe assistant or wardrobe uh, master. I'm not sure what you would call it, but, but like a wardrobe person working on plays and, and, and films and TV sets and things like that. And she wrote in with a cool story. I'm going to go ahead and just read this straight from the email she wrote. She essentially was working on this TV show and it was historical, like a historical recre- recreation kind of thing. And she says literally, one minute, I was behind the scenes steaming clothes. And before I knew it, I was fitted and in a scene as Nancy Bushrod with Abraham Lincoln. Side note, actor Fritz Klein is the best Lincoln. Daniel Day who? The women casted didn't work out. So as the only black female on set, I was an obvious choice. And guess what? They liked me. They really liked me. The director and DP complimented me, and the director suggested that I do more acting. <laughs> she says i'm thinking of getting headshots and taking a class somehow i still can't get past the ad nauseum auditioning uh and that was her story and i think that is really really cool man really really cool so isn't that interesting uh tara that uh you were like well i don't know if the second thing's for me and then you you found a sort of side sort of sort of peripheral way to kind of be in the be involved and then the universe just kind of pushed you right back in so <laughs> every just, time i try to get out they pull me right yeah, back in. just uh just take a moment and notice uh what's happening and acknowledge the feedback that you've received from these working professionals and uh, and pat yourself on the back. Congratulations! Thank you so much for sharing this awesome story. Uh, I can't wait to hear how things kind of develop from here. It's really exciting. And and as far as the ad nauseum auditioning, um, interesting way to put it. I, I hear you on that. I mean, I think a lot of actors would would kill to have an ad nauseum auditioning problem. But <laughs> but uh, I, I feel you on that. Auditioning is not my favorite thing in the world. I think a lot of actors are kind of like, uh, man, I got to audition. I I got to like rearrange my entire day now. It doesn't have to be that way. I mean, you could go the Brit Marlin route and just be like, I'm not auditioning for anything that I'm not writing, <laughs> you know? So, hmm. or, you know, if somebody wants to offer me something great, but I think there are ways around, like if you hate auditioning, um, I think number one, we should probably do something about that because it's our job really more or less to audition as actors. But number two, it doesn't have to be our main kind of thrust we don't have to be actors for hire hired guns all the time we can be content creators and act in roles that we want to do you know uh you guys who've been listening know that this is my come from lately so that's all i have to say about that that's great um yeah i i i I agree with you trev and also her story her story just reminds me of um 
that uh, that joke that Eddie Izzard tells in Dress to Kill, where he's like, he used to like, he he wanted to perform so badly, and so when he was a kid, he would literally go down to like the uh, like the movie studios or whatever, where, wherever they were shooting, and he would try to like sneak around the lot and and get in. And he makes this joke where he's like, I always I would always hope that some director would go, a creeping kid for my movie, the creeping kid. <laughs> <laughs> oh man oh, that's great so funny but I um yeah I, I i think trev you're onto something there with just acknowledging that the universe is is heavily hinting at something yeah wink, uh, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah um and, and also uh, couldn't agree w- with you more that the, if if there's a particular you know aspect of the industry that you don't love then you don't necessarily have to do that thing. You don't even really have to audition. <laughs> if you don't, yeah. if you want to be an actor and you don't want to audition, it's entirely possible to go that route. One hundred percent possible. Yeah. It's just a. It, it 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 takes a lot of work and a lot of um, going in a, in a in another direction, another route. Yeah. So. Cool. Well, Tara, thanks again for sharing. <clears throat> uh, this is such an awesome success story, and like I said, I can't wait to hear what's next. Um, I think that's all we've got for voicemails for this episode. Shall we roll into part two here with Eric? Yes, sir. All right. So part two of my chat with Eric England, he's a filmmaker. Um, you guys heard in part one that it, he's had kind of an unconventional journey from, uh, from basically like high school, like sports loving athlete to filmmaker. Uh, and, uh, in this section, uh, we get a little bit more personal, a little bit more nuts and bolts, but it's, it's, it's a little bit different than just the first section hearing about his story. That's what I love about this series is that each kind of segment is very, very different in tone and what we focus on. So enjoy part two here guys. And we'll catch you on the other side. I love that we're talking about the genesis of, of kind of like of how you got started with it yeah. because it's like this is the stuff that like we were talking about before we started recording that you don't always hear about yeah. you know but it's like it's just so cool to me that Madison County had its roots yeah. in like your friend asking for his parents for some money to make a movie yeah and like you know I, I just think that's really cool because yeah. that's the kind of story you don't hear about yeah. people just gloss over that or they only want you to focus on the good stuff because. You know, I mean, that, that's probably not the most glamorous thing to be put out into the world. Yeah, I had to ask somebody's parents for money to make a movie. Yeah. But it's like, that's how it starts. Is oh, you, absolutely. You, just, you take whatever is available to you, like whatever you can possibly kind of leverage, and you use that because you're going to get a goal and you're going to do whatever it takes to get there. Absolutely. And and I think I think more importantly, the one thing is, you know, because I've, I've had people tell me, they're like, what if I don't have a friend that has money or a friend with parents' money or something like that, you know? And and the truth is, is, is really, you know, Daniel's parents, you know weren't just you know they don't live in this massive mansion like oh hey here's a few grand go make a movie you know it was nothing like that it was honestly because of hostile encounter like they're the you know like that that $3,500 investment that I've still never seen back or seen any money that was the best money I ever spent because that showed Daniel that he you know that inspired him to say wow we could do something bigger you know Mm. and and so a lot of because i was one of those people i was like well i don't know anyone with any money you know it's like you never know who you know that has 
access to money until you show them that you have access to make them money. You know what I'm saying? Because mm-hmm. it's like when you open that door, people will want to walk through it. And that's what Hostile Encounter was, was me saying, look, there's a door here that you didn't know exists. Would you want to walk through it? And that was the, you know, for me, that was, and, and I've tried to take that mentality to everything and, and, and credit to Ace for the, um, the idea for the promo trailer. Cause that opened the door even wider yeah. because it wasn't just hostile encounters saying, Hey, look, these guys can make a movie. It was, hey, look, this is an example of what that actual movie is going to be, and so that made it so much easier to get money. And and it was, you know, and it was weird because, like, you know, I graduated high school, or high school, um, I graduated film school in two thousand and eight, and I I made Hustle Encounter in two thousand nine, and then Madison County in two thousand ten, um, and it was like I never thought for the life of me that one I would make those movies period and it was like my, I thought my first movie was going to be a million dollar movie and that's what I wanted I had this glamorous idea of what it was and when I got rid of that romanticized idea of what I wanted my career to be and just looked at the tools I had in front of me and said what can I make and just kind of MacGyvered it that's when my path quote unquote really started was when I just said okay this is what I have what can I do with it you know yeah. and 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 created those opportunities rather than saying oh man this is the idea that I have and that's how I want it to be done because you know that's how life is sometimes it doesn't go the way you plan for it so so you just kind of have to make it go you know yeah. and, and Hostile Encounter <clears throat> was really that thing because I was absolutely that person was like I don't know anyone with money I, you know I don't know anyone who would ever want to invest in me or in any of my movies but I, suddenly all these doors opened when I just put myself out there a little bit and, and, and invested in myself. You make mostly horror films right yeah. now, right? Yeah. Is that, a, is that a deliberate choice or is that like, is that, is that your, your genre of choice or is it more just like, this is uh, uh, I don't know, but it's like, is it this, is this like an easier way in, so to speak? I, I definitely think it's an easier way in, you know, for, for lack of a better term. Cause you know, horror movies, um, you know, when, when you do a drama, you, you need big actors. You know, mm-hmm. it's just unfortunate. You do. You know, you, 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 you the, the movies that win Oscars are the ones that have famous, you know, actors in them, unless you're Beast of the Southern Wild or, you know, something like that where you're, you're experimenting, you know, but even that had some money behind it. Um, you know, so with horror movies, horror movies can be made inefficiently and, and cheap, you know, uh, and, and so that's, that's the thing is like you can kind of cobble together a horror movie with less than professional circumstances and resources, you know, and it's like some of the best horror movies in the world, Blair Witch is probably one of the most unprofessional movies of Mm -hmm. all time, but it's one of the most, you know, profitable. Um, so to that degree, yes, it's a great breaking in point, but horror movies are what I grew up on. So it was like, it was just a natural, like I wanted to make horror movies. My, my, thesis projects in film school were or, or not all my thesis films but um all my little like the first exercise we ever had to do was called lost and found and they they make you shoot it in one take you can't have any cuts or anything like that and it has to be a minute long and it has to be about somebody who loses something and finds something and it was so funny because um you know they say all the time they're like someone do a minute long short about a guy who loses his keys and then finds them or something like that and so when i got to film school i was like i'm gonna do that like i'm gonna piss them off and do a short about someone who loses their keys and finds them. But my twist was about a guy who claims to lose his keys, so he gets a ride from someone, but he actually still had his keys, and he's using that as a ploy to get them in his car so he can kill them. And so that that twist on awesome. it, they were like, oh, wow, we've never seen that before. And I was like, good that's like that i think that set the precedent for my career and the types of movies i want to do 
um, where it was like, okay, I want to take something you've seen before and do it a little differently and, and in a way that you weren't expecting. Because mm-hmm. like the moment they said they were like, don't do a movie about a guy who loses his keys. I knew exactly I was going to do a movie about a guy who loses <laughs> his keys. You know, um, yeah, and yeah. and that's kind of been my life. You tell me I can't do something, I'm going to go do it. So yeah. um, so you know when when it came time to do the features and everything, I was like, my first movie has to be a horror movie, and and that's what I really wanted to do. And and you know. I, I almost did several features before Hostile Encounter, before Madison County. You know, I got I got offered a, like a, a dramedy about a kid who was coming out to his parents from a buddy of mine. Um, and, you know, I got I got offered a lot of little movies that were like, hey, we have $10,000. Do you want to make a feature? And I was like, yes, I want to make a feature, you know. And, and actually, I almost did a movie for a really – not a famous producer, but he's made a lot of like, you know – crappy horror movies that go straight to Redbox and stuff mm, like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he offered me a movie and he was like, hey, I'm doing this movie and I'm doing it in Tennessee and, you know, it's like a $10,000 budget and, you know, it's, it's going to be made exclusively for DVD and, you know, it's going straight to DVD. We're just looking to turn a quick buck. And, you know, and I'm really glad I didn't do that because I sent him my thesis film from film school and he was like, oh, wow, yeah, you, you could direct one of these, you know, and it was just like, you know, it's kind of like The Asylum or something like that. Like they, they're looking to make schlocky movies to turn a quick profit, you know, right. and I'm really glad I I didn't do that because I think that would have set a precedent for my career. I mean, mm. even James Cameron did Piranha 2 for Roger Corman. Like, you can definitely branch out from there, but I think that would have set me on a different path, and I may have been burnt out on certain things before then, you know, because it yeah. was like I could have just made bad movies and know that I was making bad movies. But, you know, with Madison County, um, you know, I have a lot of issues with it, but I'm very proud of our intentions, you know, and, and what we set out to do with it. And, and I think that set me you know my favorite thing about madison county is if even when people don't like the movie it's got a lot of negative reviews but people who didn't like the movie they're like but the director shows promise and i I look forward to seeing what he does next Mm. and it's like had i done a really schlocky movie no one would have ever thought to consider that they would have just written the movie off in general so the fact that i held out and tried to make a movie um you know beyond my means and they saw that i was striving that's what meant the most to me you know even if i wasn't going to win an award at least i got you know the 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 brightest future award you know what i'm saying like that was that was kind of the goal with madison county and, and i think this future yeah award. yeah and and you know in a weird way um i kind of wish we would have set our sights on making a better film with madison county because i think speaking for myself here um because i i think when i was making the movie the idea was to make something better than hostile encounter and make something that people would say i want to see what that guy does next mm-hmm. you know and and mm-hmm. like i think i should have focused on I want them to say, wow, this is a good movie. Yeah. You know, yeah. That was, the, that was where I learned. I was like, wow. You, you, if anything, it taught me that my instincts were correct and my intentions were correct. It was like, hey, they, they said what I wanted them to say, but I didn't want them to say the right thing. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. We, we recently interviewed a, a filmmaker named Joshua Caldwell. Um, oh, I love Josh. Great guy. Oh, so you, do you know Josh? Yeah, very talented guy. Yeah, love really, really great. I watched his film Layover. It was fantastic. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, shot for like six grand or something yeah, yeah. like that. <clears throat> and what I picked up from him, like the, the big kind of nugget that I gleaned from our, our chat was it's something that you just basically said in so many words was it's really not about one specific project it's about the whole arc of the career yeah and it's like just the just the fact that you just said like we got a lot of negative reviews but they said that you know i showed promise as yeah. a director like that's what matters and yeah like, absolutely i think that there are a lot of us uh, out there listening and i'm i think even just a few months ago i was probably one of these people that would be crushed by negative reviews yeah. be like oh you know what you're right i i suck i screw yeah. everybody just validated every kind of fear and 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 you know bullshit i've ever told myself yeah 
and I should quit and go become, you know, a banker or something. Yeah. Um, but no, it's about the long, it's about the big picture, about zooming out and seeing 10 films. You know, if yeah. you make 10 films and everybody says they suck, then maybe you should start listening to that feedback, you know, but, uh, but the fact that they said that you have a problem, like that's, that's a, I think that's a, an important, um, uh, perspective to have. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially, especially as an artist. I mean, you're never going to please anyone and, or, or I mean, you're never going to please everyone, I should say. Um, so, you know, approaching it from that standpoint of what can I take away from this experience, you know? Yeah. And, and like I said, being very objective about it, I think is the most important part. Cause there were, there, you know, the first few months after making Madison County, I was looking at it and I was like, okay, cool. I'm really proud of this. I'm really proud of what I did. Look like, like, you know, and, and, it was such a learning curve for me because I'm like, oh, look, the, the camera moves the way I want it to, you know? And it was like, that was, it was honestly Madison it's not County. It's dolly shot from film school. Exactly. Yeah. It was like Hostel Encounter and Madison County were my film school, really. You know, it's like mm. I went to film school, but making movies, I learned more than anything I ever did in film school. And that's why I'm a big advocate for people who are like, should I go to film school? I'm like, probably not. I would go make a movie, you know? It's like, mm. but I didn't mm. have the resources, nor did I know the people to actually do that. So film school was the best route for me because um, it, it, you know, introduced me to Daniel who helped me get the financing, you know, and it was, it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's all little puzzle pieces that played together. Yeah. Like I, I set a lot of those in motion with hostile encounter, but thankfully film school helped set them, you know, set up other pieces down the road. But you know, with Madison County looking at it, you know, it, it taught me, I was like, okay, great. I need to focus on my intentions more than my execution. Cause the whole, the whole thing with Madison County was like, can I make a movie? And and I proved that with Hostile Encounter, so I should have focused more on creating a, a great film as opposed to just making a film, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was like, mm-hmm. I felt like if I just, you know, put something on the table, it would be appreciated. And and I think it was a great lesson to learn because so many filmmakers, especially now, I, I run into it a lot, um, they're very precious, kind of like what you're talking about, per project. You know, it's like, I want my first movie to be Reservoir Dogs. Well, everyone wants their first movie to be Reservoir Dogs, but that's not reality anymore. A lot of times your first movie, especially nowadays, is is going to be financed by your credit card in your back, you know, shot in your backyard. Like you just have to live with that and be okay with it. Even Christopher Nolan's first movie was a $6,000 film called The Following. You know, it's yeah, like yeah. he didn't just direct The Dark Knight or Memento, you know. It's like he had to start somewhere. Everyone does. And sometimes you get Reservoir Dogs and sometimes you get Hostile Encounter. You know, it's like even Quentin Tarantino has My Best Friend's Wedding, which is a black and white 16 millimeter film that he never finished that you can find on YouTube, which was supposed to be his first feature. And a lot of people don't know there are directors that have these, you know, abandoned first feature film attempts that, you know, that, that are less glamorous, you know, it's like, oh, it's not Reservoir Dogs. It's like his first movie was that. And it's like, you know, when you realize like not everything's perfect, that's when I think as an artist, you'll, you'll really open up and, hmm. and learn to fly free. And that was honestly the best thing for me. Like, I'm so glad that I made Madison, Madison County was my introduction, quote unquote, to the general public because the movie got into Redbox and it got released. And we had the world premiere at the Chinese theater at Screen Fest, which is a huge festival. It's the one where paranormal activity was discovered. Um, you know, when we got that level of exposure, I got a lot of criticism. I, we, you know, we got a lot of praise. It was cool. We were the only movie to sell out the festival that year. We had a huge buzz around the movie, which was incredible. And then, you know, some realities hit with like, okay, cool. The distribution wasn't as big as we wanted it to be. We didn't go into theaters. We didn't do certain milestones that you want to achieve with your film. But it was great to you know, kind of level off those expectations and understand the realities of what it is and approach the next film um, you know, w- with a more grounded mindset and, and understand what the realities were and, and how to, you know, 
overachieve in those realities because mm. Madison County was such a testing ground. And, and even Roadside, the second film we did, we just kind of jumped into it before we ever finished Madison County. So when Madison County was premiered and getting released, we had already shot Roadside. And I wish I maybe had staggered that out a little bit, um, but I, I needed a paycheck and I needed, you know, right. so I was like, I was eager to jump into my next movie. And so, you know, I wish I was able to um, kind of put those lessons into Roadside, but I had to put them into Contracted. Right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this distribution because yeah. you're, you're playing festivals, yeah. uh, obviously. So you, obviously you make the film, you work with an editor, you cut it yourself and just to get like super nuts and bolts about it. Uh, and then you submit it to festivals. It gets accepted to some. You go, there are screenings and you do whatever you can to kind of build buzz around it. Yeah. And then... All of a sudden, it's on Netflix or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know there's self-distributing options out there, yeah. and that usually costs, you know, fifteen hundred bucks or so. Yeah, uh, if you want to like actually get it on Netflix and whatnot. So there is that kind of do-it-yourself route. But yeah. I know, that, I think Madison County got and Contracted are both they got picked up. Yeah. So is this the kind of thing where you're at a festival and there are distributors there searching for films, looking to buy stuff, and you just connect with them, or like, what is that like? It's um, it in a weird way, it's a lot like um, being recruited as an athlete it, it really is really? It's, it, yeah and, and in a weird way that's how a lot of hollywood is because if you have something that people want they're going to court you um distribution's a little less glamorous i think it's it's probably the biggest side of the business that i hate because mm. it's it's exactly that it's the business it's the nuts and bolts it's the dollars and cents so you know it's people undervaluing your work and and suddenly you know the, the distributors make way more money off your film than than you do than the investors do you know it's like you are very low on the totem pole when it comes to distribution. So that's, that's why up. It, it really is. And that's why I'm a big fan and a big advocate of self-distribution. The problem with self-distribution today is the exposure. A lot of people in middle America, they don't know how to find these movies because they know to go to the movie theater. They know to go to Netflix. They know to go to Redbox, And that's it. Yes. You know, they don't know. Distribution versus placement. Exactly. You know, when, you, when you get a distributor, you're paying for the placement, really. Yeah, you're paying for the exposure. And, and their yeah. marketing dollars, you know, they, they inflate their... <clears throat> marketing dollars and suddenly you're in debt to your distributor because they released your film and um you know it's 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 a tough game and it's it's a really daunting game especially if as for a first-time filmmaker um i'm thankful that my first two movies um have have both uh done well and you know we're, we're some of the few filmmakers i know who who have actually seen residuals because i know people who have extremely successful films and like i still haven't seen any any money back from them you know and it's like i the only thing i can attribute that to uh from my own personal experience is my films being undervalued from the distributor so they pay less for them and that gives us a larger piece of the back end so we're able to see money after the fact which is really nice um because usually like if you go let's say you you make a movie and it premieres at sundance or tribeca or something usually when a distributor like let's say there's a bidding war or something like that a distributor's gonna pay a very nice chunk of money uh for that film you know and and you know back in the day it would have been a lot more money but you know now it's still you know a, a decent chunk and basically you're gonna have to make that money back plus their marketing expenses plus whatever else overhead they they put on top of that before you ever see a dime and nowadays if your movie doesn't go into the the theaters you're not making millions and millions of dollars on your film so Mm. you know it's 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 sometimes your your money's stuck up against this dam of debt that it's never going to top over, you know, Jeez. and and that's the that's the daunting part of it, and that's why you know the idea now is to make your projects as as little as possible, you know, for as, as little amount of money as you can to get out there and control the revenue stream as much as possible. Because I like to use the analogy of a funnel. The the way 
uh, Hollywood uh, likes to work is they like, you know, your movie is at the pinpoint of the funnel and they like to blast it out like a shotgun and just scatter it everywhere. But I think nowadays, if you want to be successful, you have to reverse that funnel and you have to drive all that scatter shot, which is the audience into this one pinpoint, almost to mm-hmm. one location, whether it's mm-hmm. your website, whether it's your YouTube page, whether it's your Vimeo page, whatever it is, and only release your movie on one place. And it's like, rather than giving, because, you know, l- let's just be theoretical for a moment. Let's say you make your first movie on your credit card and you make it for $15,000. You make a feature for $15,000 and a distributor picks it up for $20,000. You made five grand. You're excited. Great. Let's go make another movie eventually. Um, you know, but that $20,000, you're already in debt to them. So they, they have the $20,000 they have to make back. Then they're going to, let's say they're going to spend $50,000 to market your movie, put up banners online on college humor and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Hey, go download this at iTunes, blah, blah, blah. So that's, $70,000 $70,000 you're in debt. So they, they don't they don't like give you a check up front. They do. Okay, so like so you're at a you're at a film festival and you play your film and they say that's great, we want we'll buy it for $20,000 and they give you a check for 20 grand. Yeah. So you've paid back your credit card and then yeah. you've got five you're cleared five grand. Yeah. But then they go and they they but bill you're, you you're, for this other stuff. Yeah, or? you're in debt to it cuz like they have to make that <clears throat> money back. They have to make that acquisition cost back. Um so basically, you know, they they you're $20,000 in debt to them. So let's say your movie makes you know, 25 grand off of iTunes, you know, theoretically after iTunes, after everyone takes their cut and let's say you're left 25 grand, you're only going to see 5,000 because you distribute, you owe your distributor 20 grand from the acquisition cost. Wow. See what I'm saying? So, so let's say it's 20 for the acquisition, 50 for the marketing, that's $70,000. And let's say they release it on Netflix. Let's say Netflix buys it for $50,000 for, for a two year lease. Okay, cool. You just knock down that 50%, but they have their fees. They have to take your distributor, they have a distribution fee, which is like 30% sometimes. And, uh, you know, sometimes they have holdbacks and stuff like that. So it's like the money really starts to divide and, and trickle down. And, and it's like it's split in so many places. It's a very nasty game. Wow. And, um, wow. you know, so so let's say you go to iTunes and your movie, you know, sells $100,000 on iTunes. Theoretically, you're thinking, I made one hundred and fifty grand. Well, you may only see out of that full 150 grand after your distributor takes their percentage or whatever, after the splits come out and all that jazz, you're maybe looking at maybe only seeing like 20 grand of that 150, you know, after the 70s taken away and, after you know, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Now, granted, your, your, your investors are going to see a chunk, you know, they may, but you as the artist, depending on how much you own, you may only see a few thousand dollars, you know, and, and it's like, that's the scary part of this game. So my personal opinion now is, you know, especially to these people who have built an audience of YouTube subscribers and Vine and all that jazz, it's like, if you can market yourself and make yourself a known entity and, and you know, this is this is no secret, to brand yourself, you can drive your audience directly to yourself and you don't you can cut out all those people and you can mm. upload on Vimeo on demand or VHX or, you know, whatever one of these self distribution sites are. And if you need to, let's say you don't have that exposure Add a little bit of money to your budget. Let's say you're going to make a hundred thousand dollar feature film. Make it a hundred and thirty, or make your movie for seventy and keep thirty thousand dollars for marketing, and go put up your own banners on College mm-hmm. Humor or something like that. And and because the thing is, is the one thing I've noticed is like when we sell to a distributor, 
um, you know, distributors like, oh, well, we need to make a new poster or something. And it's like, they're going to pay an artist 10 grand, a graphic artist 10 grand to make a new poster. It's like, I could have got one of my buddies to do it for a thousand. Yeah, you know? or it's for like, a pizza. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, don't spend 10 grand on that. So their marketing costs are greatly inflated and, mm-hmm. and they're putting banners on websites that I know the guys who own those websites, you know? So it's like, filmmakers are, are constantly like there, there's a lack of legitimacy sometimes you know like when people come to me and they're like oh man IFC released your film or or your movie's on Netflix it's like it, it's exciting and it's cool but it's like the reality is is like there are people who are releasing their movies themselves that are probably making more money off of it you know mm-hmm. um, you know Contracted is one of the very special circumstances because it did extremely well but you know, like on Madison County, that's definitely the case. You know what I'm saying? Because Madison County wasn't a smash hit, like contracted. So, you know, when when you compare those two, I'm I'm very thankful that I had that experience with Madison County to educate me on like, oh wow, this didn't hit as well. And then to see, okay, contracted, I, I understand what worked and, and you know, the business side of it, why this is making this much money and how it's trickling down and, and all those things. So I was able to kind of compare a, a hit and not a hit, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and and kind of yeah. look at that. But even even with the hit of contracted, like if contracted went to the box office and made millions of dollars, it'd be a different story. But in terms of just like a VOD model, which, you know, most movies are nowadays, it's like, in my opinion, I, I would much rather make a, if I'm going to make a VOD movie, I would much rather release it myself. How about like Vimeo on demand or, uh, I mean, VOD video on demand, but yeah. Vimeo has like a pay to, yeah, a pay to play demand. or rent or whatever feature. Yeah. Is that a viable model right now? I think so. I, it's absolutely a viable model. It really just comes down to exposure. It comes down mm-hmm. to marketing. Uh, I, I want to, I, you know, I, I don't know their terms anymore, but I want to say when they introduced, it was a 90-10 split, 10 them, 90 you. So you own 90% of the money your your movie makes. And, you know, if you can create content that people want to watch, it's a it's an absolutely great resource to great. get get your project out there and have people pay for it. The issue is most people who buy things online, it's through Amazon, iTunes, blah, 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 that have their credit card information, so it's a click. Vimeo is not YouTube, unfortunately, and and I don't know how far away YouTube. I think YouTube's toying with it, you know, being able to release stuff. But it's like people like they don't like giving their credit card information out. They don't like it being stored because they know they'll impulsively click things. So it's like it's a matter of finding a way to get people to feel comfortable buying this product and and feeling like they're getting a legitimate thing because people go to the movie theater because they expect that quality. Okay, we're yeah. gonna get Hollywood quality. They don't think they're gonna get Hollywood quality on YouTube, and they're sure as hell not gonna pay for it. You know, so it's how do you get them to understand there is Hollywood quality and and in a lot of times better quality. You know. It, if you're looking for story-wise, you know, you know, uh, filmmakers like you and I, we don't have the Michael Bay budgets, but our stories are probably better, you know. And mm-hmm. it's like, how do you educate the audience to understand? Hey, our stories are better, and the content's going to be more, you know, valuable in in that regard. So you want to see that? I think what it's going to take, honestly, is is when you have a movie like Dallas Buyers Club or something like that that is released exclusively on Vimeo on demand and wins an Oscar, and then people are going to realize, oh wow, that is yeah. a, that is a viable option, and there are gold mines. Of, of content on these channels that aren't going into movie theaters, you know, but it's going to unfortunately take some renegade in Hollywood to buck up and do that. Yeah. And they're afraid to do that because they're afraid they're going to lose that money. Dallas Buyer Club made how many millions at the box office? Like they're afraid they're not going to make that money on Vimeo demand, 
which is you know a, a, a understandable argument but it's like for me personally uh, while I'm at this weird stage in my career, uh, career where it's like, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to make the films that go to the box office. It's like I still want to find I, – I, if I can help, I want to do that because I personally believe that, you know, if, if I don't have a career like Steven Soderbergh where I can just walk into HBO and say, hey, I want to do a show and they're just going to hand me money, I need to figure out what ways are going to be viable for me to continue my career and sustain in between the bigger gigs that I do if I just want to make right. a passion project because sometimes your passion projects are the ones that don't get that exposure. Mm-hmm. So how do you get them out to an mm-hmm. audience? How do you make them viable to where you can keep making them for the, you know, one for them, one for you mentality? Yeah. 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 Jeez, there was an article, um, I think it was in the Hollywood Reporter about a month or two ago. You may have seen it. It was a talk that I think it was Spielberg and maybe even George Lucas mm-hmm. gave at, at USC. Talking about the business imploding? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that whole thing about like what he what they feel like it's going to take for listeners who haven't read it yet. I think, and I, I mentioned it on a recent episode too, but basically they said that what it's going to take is three or four or five huge, like, you know, multi, multi, multi million, like several hundred dollar million budget movies yeah. to just completely tank yeah. and just completely flop, not just domestically, but internationally, yeah. like nobody buys it. And then people will start saying, okay, we need to find a new model. And like, mm-hmm. but once that happens and it's going to happen, they're, they're confident of it. You've got people like Spielberg predicting this, yeah. um, that that's when maybe when people will start exploring alternative release models and and uh forms of distribution and maybe that's when something like vimeo becomes something that people start to that sea change happens and people go oh well you know maybe there is some good stuff on here i'm not gonna yeah. be not gonna be uh compromising my inte- my artistic integrity as an audience member by going to vimeo instead of the cinemark yeah movie theater downtown exactly yeah so uh, it's interesting man it's it's going to be a really interesting time as we go forward in the next 10 15 20 years with you know, the increased sort of like, you know, download speeds and internet and, and, you know, with financial crashes and booms and things, you've got the environment falling apart. I mean, it's going to be really trippy time, man. I think we're going to see a lot of change really quickly. It's going to be Thunderdome. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I constantly, I'm, I'm always looking to what the the next thing's going to be. And I, I have theories and it's like, I'm, I'm really curious to see what it is. It's, it's, you know, everyone seems to kind of have their own ideas, but I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm nervous, but I'm anxious to see where, where it goes for sure. Hey everyone, welcome back. If you're hearing my voice, that means we're done with the interview because I wasn't there. Although being here in, in New York, I gotta say, you know, I've, uh, I've got access to a whole other, you know, market of actors, and it's it's really really cool. Yeah, um, I'm excited. Really exciting people. <clears throat> yeah, I'm excited for not only the people I have already made connections with, but the people that I would continue to make connections with as a result of working. Um, Working, playing, living in uh, in this market. Mm-hmm. Amen. Cool, man. So, well, thank you, Trev, for your work. Yeah, of course. <laughs> what's your uh, pick of the week this week? So, my pick of the week. Uh, this is a bit unconventional because I actually have not fully consumed this piece of media, and so I just wanted to sort of put that out there as a disclaimer, um, since you know um, you guys listening to this trust us and you know come to us for um not just advice but you, you know a lot of people really absorb these these picks of the week and I'm, I'm totally flattered and honored but i uh, just wanted to let you know that i haven't actually read through the entirety of this book that being said 
I went to a what was essentially a masterminds group for actors the other night. And one of the people who was there kept bringing the book up and talking about all the different points in it and saying how they have supported her. And then we basically all busted it out and started going through these little um, worksheets. And that's what really interested me about this book because it's very uh, artist's way, which I, has been a pick of the week for Trevor and myself in the past, um, except it sort of takes the artist's way one step back so whereas the artist way is about getting out of your own way because you already know you want to be an artist, but you're just in your own way. This book, which is called Your Heart's Desire, is about taking a step back and seeing like, hang on a second, is that really what you want? And I, I was inspired to make it my pick of the week because of Joe's email that we discussed earlier in the podcast. It's like finding out what your priorities are, what you really want, and 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 getting to the heart of what it is that you want to do with your, what, what your vision is, what you want to do with your life, what you want to um, put your focus and your priorities uh, on. And <clears throat> I thought that, you know, with people, you know, like Joe out there trying to decide if, you know, acting is even going to be their main thrust for the rest of their life, uh, this would be a really great supportive uh, book. So it's called Your Heart's Desire, colon, Instructions for Creating the Life You Really Want by uh, Sonia uh, Coquette, or, yeah, Coquette, I'm guessing. Um, and it's available on Amazon, which means we'll probably have an affiliate link on our website. So if that sounds like something that uh, might be supportive to you, go ahead and, uh, and check it out. Cool. So you've dug through a little bit of it, though, yeah? Yeah, yeah, like a, a lot of it, because so much of it is, you know, there's there's the philosophy aspect of it, and then there are all these worksheets, and the worksheets are the things that I've that I've looked at. Um, so, for for example, you know, there's this one that um, basically just lists um, what in the uh, transformation world of transformation we would call the domains of your life. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so, like if you were building an LOA, a letter of accomplishment, like we've talked about on the podcast before, um, what domains would you be focusing on? And so they've got you know health and body, finances, relationships, home, work, creative expression, travel possession, spiritual, special intention. So you, you, you not only, you list those, it's interesting, you do it twice, you list them um, in priority of what they are right now, being super brutally honest with yourself, and then you list them again as where you want them to be, mm. the priorities of where, how you want them to be, and then you basically go through these various worksheets describing you know, how you would like that domain in your life to look, just after that, there's um, worksheets on, not, not necessarily worksheets, but instructions, so to speak, on how to, not how to, instructions on um, what to focus on in a meditation to support mm, you in, in, cool. in really working towards, you know, um, making th- those want priorities a reality. Cool, man. Well, this, yeah. <clears throat> it sounds like really necessary foundational work for a creative person to be doing. Yeah, especially if you're, like I said, in a situation like like Joe, for instance, or, or anyone in that situation. I know it applies to, I know a lot of people can empathize and relate to that situation. Yeah. Um, you know, anybody who's, who happens to be in that sort of mindset or, or, or dealing with those questions, you know, um, it, it might be time to, to really dive in and see if this, this thing, this creative walk is, is really what you want. Awesome. Cool, man. 
I'm down with that. I, it sounds like something to check out for sure. So uh, what's your pick, my friend? My pick of the week is a book by Chris Gullibo, who or Gillibo, I'm not sure. I've heard it pronounced several different ways. But um, he has a blog called The Art of Nonconformity, as well as a book called The Art of Nonconformity, as well as another book called The $100 Startup, as well as another book, which is my pick of the week, The Happiness of Pursuit. I got an advanced reader copy from Chris himself. And, uh, and I, I read it through pretty quickly with like just two or three days. And it's a fantastic book that is all about essentially finding your quest. What, what is your, what, what is a quest in your life? And basically anything, a quest is anything that is kind of a large, unconventional, um, project or pursuit, something huge. Um, some examples are Chris himself actually set a, a goal to visit every single country on the planet. There's 193 countries currently visit every single country on the planet by his 35th birthday. It took him like six years, but he eventually did it. Uh, another quest would be uh, a woman who, um, uh, set out to cook a meal from every single country on the planet. Uh, and then another, another guy, uh, walked across the country. It took him seven months to walk from, I think like New York to San Francisco or something like that. Uh, another woman lived in a tree in like the Amazon rainforest as, as a protest to, um, as a protest to deforestation. And she was there for over a year, like a year and three months. So it's, it's, it's got all these really inspiring, fascinating kind of quirky stories about these people who were just had a crazy idea that most of us would look at and be like, okay, that's cool. But why are you doing that? But these people are just driven by the, the need, the desire and the need to accomplish something just huge and, and strange and awesome with their lives. And, um, all of them just said they couldn't get the idea out of their head and they decided to just do it. And these are really long journeys, but if anything, the book inspired me to really, uh, kind of double down on my life list. Some people would call it a bucket list, but I'm, I'm going to call it a life list and just set some big things that I want to do with my life. You know, and uh, if anything, it's really supported me in seeing that acting is something that I love and that I'll always be um, pursuing in one form or another. But it's not the only thing. I mean, it's just one small part of a much larger kind of masterpiece that I want to kind of create with my life. And, and that includes, you know, learning a foreign language and living to 101 years old and, you know, completing 300 workouts in a year and, uh, and, and visiting, you know, um, Iceland and go and staying in the ice <coughs> hotel and seeing the Northern lights, like all this stuff, you know, I, I finally, um, doubled down on that and really kind of got organized about it. And, uh, it's awesome. So, uh, that was a long explanation, but the book is called The Happiness of Pursuit by Chris Gillibo. Uh, link on our website. I highly recommend checking it out. It's just a fun read, and hopefully it inspires some awesomeness in your life. Ah, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I love that. So we also have a pick from uh, um, Michael Paul. Uh, thank you for sending this in, Mike. So this guy, Philip Petit, I want to say is his name, or maybe it's Philippe Petit. Uh, he's the guy who walked on a tightrope between the World Trade Center towers in 1974, and they made a documentary film about it called Man on Wire. That apparently hey, I won the Tony. Oh, did it? I mean, the, sorry, the Tony. Wow. Hi, I'm in New York. <laughs> uh, it won the Oscar. Jeebus Christ! Wow. I'm an idiot. Have you seen uh, it? 
I have not. I've always wanted to. It, I, I wanted to see it before the Oscars that year, and then when it won, I was like, oh, now I really want to see it. And yeah. I'm just, I, I'm an idiot. I believe, I believe it's on Netflix instant, uh, even to this day, because sometimes things show up on Netflix and then they disappear. But anyway, uh, it's a, uh, here it's a great documentary. And this article, it's an article that's just basically an interview with this guy, Philippe, Philippe Petit, and it's really interesting. It's a throwback to Joe's uh, email from earlier about just kind of having uh, sort of alternative performers, jugglers and fire breathers and stuff. And in this article, Philippe talks about how he just kind of feels like he's he's living in the Middle Ages. He doesn't really do the cell phone or the TV or the the internet or all the newfangled technology the kids do these days. He just he really just kind of focuses on living in the world and and that's that's crucial to his art. And it's a really in, insightful article. So the link is on our website. Uh, thank you, Michael, for sending that in. And uh, I hope you guys dig that. It's really really good stuff. All right, that about does it for episode 161. Before we wrap this bad boy up, we want to give a quick shout-out to Tara Patterson. We heard her awesome email earlier in the episode. She's also our patron of the week. She's been supporting us for years, like almost since the very beginning. And she works as a costume design, a costumer, I should say, on feature films, TV shows, etc. She really enjoys it, and yet she's still willing to explore and grow in TV and film production. She invites us to check out her resume on her website, which is tmoniquechic.com. That's tmoniquechic.com. The spelling can be a little confusing right off the bat, so head to our website for a link to that. She also loves creative expression, writing, DIYing, and arts and crafts. Now she's venturing into designing uh, T-Monique sandals, so she's actually designing her own uh, clothing as well. Check out her Etsy shop. It's T. Monique, and links to all this is on our website, so make sure you guys check her out. She seems like a really exciting person to be kind of keeping up with. And thank you, Tara, for your ongoing support. For episode 161, you guys know how to get in touch with us. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on iTunes, we're on the worldwide intertubes, insideactingpodcast.com. You can call us, leave us a voicemail at 2132-ACTORS. That's 213-222-8677. And you can also uh, donate to the show. You can head to our website. There's a donate button on the right-hand side. And just click on that and leave us a a one-time donation in any amount you choose. Uh, Every penny counts, so no donation is too small. Or you can become a recurring monthly contributor, which we call patrons. Uh, We'll call you a patron and put your... uh, your photo and a blurb up on our site and give you a shout out on the show make sure everybody knows that you are amazing uh that that is it for me for 161 you got anything else uh, no i think i think you covered it all man. all right i kind of went <laughs> on a roll there yeah i was like i got nothing, I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> all right so for episode 161 jen levin is our production coordinator cesar gamino is our technical d- producer Gadali Gubarek is our marketing and web director. Deborah Smith is our community manager. And of course, we have a huge thanks out always, always, always to all of our patrons who are the gas in the gas tank that keeps this bus rolling. How about the charge in the battery? I like that so much better. Keeps the electric or the uh, the hydrogen fuel in the hydrogen-based car. <laughs> the the sunlight that the sunlight falls, and the solar that panel. washes over the photo photovoltaic. <laughs> uh, yes, there it is. All right. So for episode 161, my name is Trevor Algott. I'm AJ Meyer. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, be yourself.
This episode of Inside Acting has been brought to you in part by Rehearsal 2, the app for actors. Want to learn your lines fast? Be off book for auditions? Explore your character and make stronger choices? There's an app for that. Rehearsal 2. Download it now at rehearsaltheapp.com slash download. That's rehearsaltheapp.com slash download.